In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of divine grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. This conference is on sin and the effects of sin. There is a general attitude, I think, among most people that, you know, once you commit the sin, you know, you're sorry for the sin and then it's all over with. You go to confession, it's all over with. But there are effects of sin which continue even after we've stopped sinning. And it's a good idea to know what those are, if for no other reason than to motivate us not to fall into sin, but um, also for us to get a clear understanding of when you commit specific kinds of sins, there's specific kinds of effects that arise from each kind of sin. And so we have to start working on those. Sin is defined as a transgression of the laws of God, that is, any thought, word, or deed against the law of God. And of course, there are three kinds of law. The first is what we call divine positive law. And that's the law that Christ gave to us that's above and beyond any other kinds of laws, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, Christ or God in the Old Testament gave to us an example of a divine positive law is when Christ told the apostles, go teaching and baptizing all nations, which meant that they had the obligation before God, so it's now their, the law that binds them, to teach all nations. So they're not permitted to say, for example, that you can't proselytize a certain group of people or not. They could say um, temporarily they have the right to determine the prudential um, execution of that, um, you know, trying to convert people, but they couldn't deny it to anybody. Then there's what we call the natural law, and that is the very structure which God designs into the human nature, and that, that design of the human nature tells us what God intended regarding what we are supposed to do. So it tells us, you know, you look at our human nature, and what it's inclined towards, not the evil, of course, but the good things that it's inclined towards, and that tells us what we're supposed to do. And then there's what we call civil law. Now, there's been a debate about whether civil law binds in the form of conscience, historically, but in the last century, the popes uh, came down on the side of the, that the civil law does bind, unless the matter is grave, uh, like murder and things like that, which are normally covered by the natural law anyway. Civil law, if you violate, is normally just venally sinful unless you're talking about large sums of money and things of that sort. There are two kinds of sin, or two kinds of violation of God's law, that is mortal and venial. The mortal is a grave offense uh, against the law of God, and venial is a slight offense. And for mortal sin, of course, you have to have sufficient reflection, full consent of the will, and the matter has to be grave. Original sin, that is the sin of Adam and Eve, had uh, several effects. Original sin is the sin which all men inherited from our first parents, and it is communicated from our parents to, or from parents to their children, by the passing on of human nature. Since it is passed on to the children, it is not an actual sin of the person who receives it. So it's not like you have to go and confess original sin. It's you get baptized to get it remitted. Original sin consists basically in the non-passing on of grace, or what we call the original justice given to our first parents. So that in point of fact, original sin is the passing on not only of defects, like an inclination towards um, evil and things like that, but it's the actual lack of grace that's passed on. 
Original sin resides in the soul alone, that it is something in the soul. What occurs in the flesh, that is in the body, is part of the punishment or the effects of original sin and is not original sin itself. As to the effects of original sin, there are a variety of disorders that man suffers from original sin, many of which are bodily. Man has become disordered through original sin, and this manifests itself bodily in death, illness, natural disasters, and things of this sort. St. Thomas observes in, the, in, um, in an article in his Summa that the disorder of the powers of the soul, that is our faculties which help us to do things, is due to the fact that the will has turned away from God. So, in a sense, the punishment fits the crime. Since man uh, was not ordered to God, man himself became disordered. In other words, man who should be subordinated to the superior, that is God, suffers that lack of subordination of those things which are, of, of the, those things which are inferior to that which is superior. What's that mean? It means that just as man was not subordinated to God, so his lower faculties, like his appetites, his emotions, are not subordinated to reason. So the punishment fit the crime. We therefore come to a point where we can elucidate the four primary effects of original sin. The first is sickness and death, which we mentioned before. The second is that the will has become prone to evil. Insofar as original sin inclines the will to, uh, to actual sin, and it also means that the will is now weakened. So in addition to um, malice, that is, doing things that are evil, uh, it is weak, so it's hard to do the good things. It will be more difficult to, the will, um, to will the good because of the weakness of the will arising from original sin. The third effect of original sin is the disorder of the passions or appetites, uh, sometimes called the emotions. And this is what we call the, uh, the, in Latin there's a term called the fomes picatis, which is the tenders of the flesh. Sometimes it's, it's translated as concupiscence. This means, as St. Paul points out, that the flesh, that is the lower faculties, war against the spirit, that is the higher faculties. So the appetites or emotions do not want to obey our reason and our will and they tend to go off on their own because the control of the spiritual faculties over the body has been debilitated. The law of the flesh is what it's sometimes called, that's uh, the fomis picatis, um, becomes a problem for man because it instigates evil. That is, the lower faculties have a tendency to want to go off and do things that are evil, so it inclines them to commit sin. And it's an inclining of, the, of these appetites to what is contrary to reason. And so as a result, all sorts of sins can arise out of the fact that our lower faculties d don't want to obey reason. G.K. Chesterton says that man after the fall is like someone who runs out and jumps on a horse and runs in all directions. So in other words, when you're trying to get the body and the, and the appetites and the emotions under control, they're just all over the map. And the way you get them under control is called virtue. Original justice actually was part of the gift of integrity kept all of the lower faculties perfectly subordinated to reason. But after the fall, that gift was lost permanently. And so in order to recoup the order of the lower faculties to be subordinated to the higher, we have to have virtue. Those under the punishment of the law of the flesh will find it hard to overcome this disorder. And this is what St. Thomas calls the legatio fomites, that is, that the lower faculties 
make it hard to be tamed. They're hard to get under control. The fourth effect of sin is the darkening of the intellect. And there are several aspects to this effect. First is the blindness of the intellect. And this results in the fact that um, anytime we commit any sin whatsoever, not just do we inherit this from, our, from original sin, but it's proper to any actual sin, the intellectual blindness is the punishment for the sin. In the writings of St. Thomas, we see that blindness of the intellect is twofold. The first is that the blindness in the intellect is due to the loss of the natural light of reason by the impeding of the lower powers which reason depends. And what does that mean? It means that, it, not to get too, uh, too complicated, but our intellect is actually a complex faculty. It's not just a bodily organ. It, that's only part of it. There, which includes the imagination and memory and things like that. And we know it includes things like memory, because if you smack someone over the head, they forget things. But, um, but there's that part. But then there is an immaterial or a spiritual part of the faculty which operates independently of matter. And that, facult that part of the faculty, however, depends on the imagination. So whatever throats through the imagination, we can have something in the imagination, but then we can judge what we think about that and that's how we know that these two things are distinct. But very often our judgment is in, it's bound up by what's in our imagination. So when we commit sin, those lower faculties, part of which is this, this material part of the intellect, get disordered. Um, a perfect example is when people are trying to pray. You know, they might know of, you know, I'm trying to pray here, but my imagination is all over the map. And that's one of the signs that it's very hard to get that under control. And so when that happens, it tends to blind us a bit intellectually. One cannot lose the light of reason completely, since as long as one has reason, you can't lose it. The natural light of reason can, affect, can be affected by sin. And for St. Thomas, this loss of the natural light of reason is a punishment due to sin. In effect, what this means is, is that sin makes us stupid. So the more you sin, the dumber you get. And, you know, it's true, it's... it's uh, Maybe this is just a perception as I get older, but it seems to me that our society is just getting dumber and dumber the more it sins. Through sin we become fixated and attached, in other words we contract spiritual imperfections, in relation to created things. This results in the person's inability to consider spiritual things, St. Thomas says, because you get so fixated on the, the physical thing or the created thing that you're not as freed in order to pursue the higher things. This is one of the reasons why Christ gave the counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Because by poverty and chastity, we can turn away from lower things and, and therefore be free to consider things that are higher. The associations which we make now in our mind is now according to created things and is not done according to spiritual judgment. So the next time we see something, it's hard to consider the thing from the point of view of the spiritual life. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, um, a, a good example is lust. When somebody gives in to lust, the next time they see someone of the opposite sex, they tend to judge them from that point of view rather than a, from a spiritual point of view. So I always tell the seminarians, your perfection consists in always looking at the spiritual well-being of women. You have to have perfect detachment from the goods of marriage. doesn't mean you become a homosexual. It means that you just have to have perfect detachment from the goods of marriage. Sorry, every sin also darkens the intellect, not only as to the specific sin, and so sin makes us blind to the sin that we commit. 
So when you first commit a sin, you get some type of um, enjoyment or pleasure out of it, and then the next time you go to judge, your, you recall from memory the enjoyment that you had of that, and that blinds your intellect as to how bad the thing is. But it also blinds us not to the, only to the specific sin, but to sin in general, insofar as the lower powers in our intellect are trained and habituated not to follow the natural law. In other words, every time you commit a sin, intellectually we're off, and also our lower faculties are off. Sin, therefore, has an inherent stultifying effect. It just dumbs us down. The opposite virtues to each vice that we commit, so each time we commit a sin, if it leaves a residual habit in the soul, and that has to be rooted out, and that residual habit, and each time you do it, it gets worse and worse and worse and stronger and stronger. It's called a vice. And in order to reverse the vice, you have to do acts of virtue. So each time we, each time we commit sins, we get these vices, we get dumb. The opposite happens. The more virtuous we become, the more the blindness of the intellect evaporates. In other words, the more clear vision we tend to have of these things. St. Thomas notes that the vehemence of venereal pleasure and pleasure associated with gluttony can dull the mind and the senses. As to the senses, I mentioned this last night, the body tends to adjust itself to the actions or operations of the soul. The senses also adjust themselves. As a result, sin can actually affect the acuity of the senses. So like if you, and we see this on, in unfortunate things, People who engage in certain kinds of sins against the Sixth Commandment, the next time they do it, they have to do it more vehemently to get the same level of pleasure out of it. The next time the person seeks the same level of pleasure, he must do something more vehement, and consequently the dullness of the senses arise from the sin. And this can actually affect our ability of our intellect to know, because we always know things by means of the senses. Virtuous actions, on the other hand, will actually heighten the senses and make them more capable of providing information, and thereby leading to a greater knowledge. When a person sins, he becomes blind to the sin, and he will find it hard to see, A, that he's even sinning, and B, that that particular form of action is sinful. He will find it hard to see what is wrong with that form of action, even when it's explained to him. So you can sit people down and say, look at you know, going around shooting people in a mall with an AK-47 is bad. I don't know, I don't, I don't see what the problem is. You know, you get that kind of a thing. St. Thomas also calls this blindness a kind of darkness of the intellect arising from the darkness of sin. Just as when one cannot see when there is no light, so the intellect has a hard time knowing the truth when it is darkened by sin, not only regarding spiritual or supernatural things, but also with regard to natural things. This is important because what this means is is St. Thomas makes this observation, it means that people just get done with more of their sin, but St. Thomas makes this observation that when a person doesn't have chastity, because chastity gives one a certain clarity of intellectual vision, he says that when they don't have chastity, and he might know the general, the general precept, you know, fornication's immoral, but then what happens is, is I always use the example with the seminars, Bessie Sue comes along, and it precipitates his judgment because of the, of the perceived pleasure he might get out of it, and so St. Thomas says he actually changes his mind, that um, even though in general it's, uh, it's not okay, but here and now it's okay. But then the psychology of that is you keep doing that and eventually you think it's okay all the time. And then it's not just okay, eventually everybody should be doing it. It's that type of thing. 
And you can see that progression that actually happened in our culture. Also, according to St. Thomas, there's a certain light that accompanies grace, which is super added to the natural light of reason. Grace enlightens the mind and strengthens the will. Grace helps us to do the right thing as well as to see things intellectually. Sin results in the loss of this grace as well as wisdom. Now, wisdom is the, is the gift of the Holy Ghost by which one considers God the way God, God sees himself. And one of the signs that you know that people are sinful is that they are no longer approaching God the way God determines, but they want to approach God in their own terms. This is one of the reasons why I'm so in favor of the Old Mass, because it determines how we relate to God. And it's not the worship is not at the volition of the creature to determine how it's going to relate to God. And so we may say that sin causes darkness of the intellect from the, from the loss of grace. Another reason that the intellect is darkened as a result of original and actual sin is because when someone sin, the will moves the intellect to judge the thing contrary to the way the intellect knows it to be. That is, the conscience tells us the thing is bad, but we force ourselves to think about it only from the perspective of the good. This means that there is a certain violence done to the intellect. Now, violence is defined as action contrary to the nature of a thing. In consequence, the next time the intellect sees the same thing, it will be inclined to judge the thing contrary to the truth. And this is a form of darkening in the intellect. In other words, what it means is, is that when you go contrary to conscience and look at the thing from the point of view of the good thing you're getting, that the apparent good, not the truly good, that you're getting out of it, then what happens is the intellect gets habituated into thinking things according to the apparent good. So you get these habits of thinking that actually blind you intellectually. And so you start thinking in terms of falsity rather than in truth. And this is something that's quite apparent. You can see people who just sin constantly, it's not just a matter of them not wanting to see the truth. A lot of times they just can't see it because they have these impediments, these habits in their way of thinking that makes it impossible for them to see the truth. This darkness of the intellect also leads to difficulties in coming to knowledge of God and religious things. So people who sin a lot and get into the habit of thinking falsely are just going to have a hard time understanding things that pertain to God. This is why, you know, you'll see I always hope this isn't malice on my part, but I always get a certain amount of delight in watching the news media when you get a good solid Catholic on there who says, no, it's this, 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 and this, and you just see this blank look on the, on the, on the interviewer. Like, it just doesn't, they don't even know what it means. You know, he's speaking English, but I don't understand what he's saying. All right. Of course, that's been described about me, so I don't I should be careful. All right. With all of the disorder introduced into the various faculties, so in other words, all these various faculties get disordered, this leads to kind of a disordered relationship of men and women that they have to each other. In effect, it, sin makes common life more difficult. And this is what I tell people, your marriage is difficult, uh, there's some sin floating around somewhere. Another effect was that since Adam and Eve cooperated with Satan and followed his disorder, Rather than God's order, man now becomes subject to the domination of the diabolic. Not only in original sin, but also in actual sin. Each time you sin, Satan gains greater control over you. There are only, these are only some of the effects of original sin, just some of them. Actual sin, sometimes called personal sin, uh, is called a personal sin insofar as it is 
the action which we perform ourselves. It's not something we inherit, it's something we act, uh, we do ourselves. Since sin is defined as a uh, free transgression of the law of God, either divine or positive, this means that the subject of sin is in the will, that is, it's a free transgression. So, excuse me, sin is properly in the will, since sin is something which we choose. Since sin is a transgression of the law of God, sin is a form of disobedience. The species of the act of the will, now what that means is the kind of choice you're making is determined by the object or the thing you're thinking about when you make that choice. Since St. Thomas says actions are specified by their objects, that is, are what we choose is determined by what we're thinking. By willing theft, we say, a man becomes a thief. By willing to lie, he becomes a liar. Now, one of the things that's happening is, as you, you see this, it's, it's uh, on one level it's humorous, on another level it's, it's uh, rather grave, is somebody will shoot somebody. Then, I'm not a murderer. You know, well, wait a minute, you just murdered somebody. Yeah, but that's not me. Well, yeah, it is. You just did it. In other words, people can't appropriate their sin, and that's one of the effects of sin, is the, is the inability to appropriate their sin. And this is, it's, it's analogous to the alcoholic. Until the guy admits he's got the problem, he's not going to be able to overcome it. So the number of the effects of sin are too great to cover here, but there's a few things that we can, uh, we can deal with. Each particular sin brings its own sets of problems and defects. The first is that if, with every sin, not just mortal, but with venial sin, there is an infinite offense to God on the side of the person that we're acting against. So what this means is, is I always tell the seminarians we talk about this, God has to maintain you in existence, and the cause is always present to the effect, which means that God is always present, keeping you in existence and helping you perform these actions that you do. So that when you make a free choice of sin, you're actually abusing God who's helping you to perform the action. Not that he's the cause of the sin, you're the cause of the sin because you've chosen it, but you're abusing God in the process. So there's an infinite offense committed on the side of God. Even if the act itself isn't infinite, the fact that it's done against God is infinite, because he's infinite. Sin vitiates against perfect and imperfect happiness. So every time you sin, you take away the happiness that you have. In the Aristotelian tradition, St. Thomas makes the observation that there's two kinds of happiness, perfect and imperfect. You can only have perfect happiness in heaven when you see God face to face. But in this life, we can have imperfect happiness. That doesn't mean you walk around depressed. It just means that it's not the same degree as it is in heaven. And he says there's two ways in which you gain imperfect happiness. By a life of contemplation. This is why the more you pray, the happier you become. This is why you see people who are in contemplative orders are all very contented. Um, but then also, he says, a life in accordance with virtue makes us happy because it fits our nature, and so as a result we're functioning properly, and so we're kind of contented. Now, what this means is, is every time you sin, you vitiate against that and you become unhappy. Sin is a turning away from the light of reason and from the divine law, and is actually contrary to the nature of reason. Sin causes us to deviate from our course, because this life is the means by which we reach our final end, which is God, and so every time we sin, we detract from reaching Him. Sin diminishes the natural inclination to virtue. And virtue is found in four faculties. 
And so the diminishing of the inclination to virtue likewise manifests itself in these four faculties, namely the intellect, the will, the irascible appetite, and the concupiscible appetite, and we'll talk about each one of these. In addition, these faculties suffer further effects, all of which fall under the title of a wound. So our nature, our faculties become wounded. In every sin, the intellect and reason is left destitute of its ordering to the truth, which we talked a little bit about, which results in what is called the wound of ignorance. This is clear in our discussion of original sin. And like anything else that is wounded, the intellect is left weak and bereft of its vigor and its ability to know the truth. So whenever you wound something, it has a hard time functioning, and that's what, that's what happens to our intellect. The next wound is that which pertains to the will. For the will is left destitute of its ordering to the good. That is, each time a person sins, he increases his tendency to evil. This wound is called malice which is the inclination to will the evil. The more one violates the laws of God's, the more w his will becomes fixated on evil. The next wound pertains to the irascible appetite. Now, as I mentioned last night, the irascible appetite is that which has the emotions of things like anger and things of this sort. Uh, e this wound leaves the irascible appetite. Sorry, the next wound is that which is in the irascible appetite. It's called the wound of weakness. Because the irascible appetite is the thing that helps us to overcome things that are difficult. This wound leaves the irascible appetite hampered with regard to its ordering towards the arduous good. And this results in the person becoming cowardly. And he loses his drive to do something which is right and at the same time difficult. So in other words, it's just hard for us to do the right thing. We might know what the right thing is. We may want to do the right thing. But that doesn't mean we're going to do it because we might be debilitated in the inclinations we have towards it. But this wound and the wound of malice causes the soul to lose its strength to do the good. And this makes it harder to act well. So each time you sin, it means it's going to be that much harder to do the right thing. This is why I tell people, you get them into confession from time to time. They'll come in, they say, well, Father, I fell into mortal sin, so I figured I might as well just enjoy myself, so I continue doing it. Every time you did it, in addition to the fact that you've offended God infinitely every time you've done it, you disordered your, your faculties more and more and more. You get absolution that takes away the sin. It doesn't take away all the effects of the sin, which means when it comes time for you to do the right thing, it's going to be much harder now. So what's the moral of the story? When you commit the sin, stop. Get to confession and get it straightened out. Don't continue in it. The last wound is that of concupiscence, which is the wound in the concupiscible appetite. And that's the one that I mentioned last night, the desires food and conjugal relations. This wound leaves the concupiscible appetite destitute of its ordering towards moderation with respect to delight and pleasure. Through sin, concupiscence or desire increases. The more one sins, the more one's concupiscible appetite desires and seeks pleasure and delight. The more one sins, the more antecedent appetite will be insubordinate to reason. What does that mean? Well, St. Thomas makes a distinction. They're not distinct in themselves. It's it, how they relate to reason. We notice that sometimes, um, you know, we'll have these emotional inclinations or passions before reason really has much of a chance to even say anything. Or it'll act, they will have these emotions contrary to reason. That's called antecedent appetite, that it happens before or contrary to what we think and, and want. Then there's what we call consequent, and that is once we will, will something, 
then there's emotions that tend to flow from that, and that's called consequent appetite. Every time we sin, the antecedent appetite increases. Because why? You basically are telling the appetite, yeah, you go off and do what you want independent of reason. So the next time the object comes in to which it's attracted, it just goes off and does its thing. One will simply have more of the uh, antecedent passion. In other words, one becomes more emotional and becomes harder to control the emotions. Not only as to the degree of its strength, that is the degree of the strength of the passions, but also how often it occurs. So the more you give in to sin, the more emotional you become. Aside from these four wounds, there are the other effects of sin. So that's just, so our faculties just get disordered from the whole process. Aside from these four wounds, there are other effects. Sin is the cause of death, as sin merits the punishment of death. Sin is also the cause of death insofar as war and public strife are the effect of sin and injustice, which is also a sin. Sin can be the cause of death in ourselves and in others. This can be the cause of death in ourselves directly, as when we commit suicide or do something which directly leads to our death. Sin can also be the cause of our death indirectly, as when we engage in behavior which causes death remotely. For example, through AIDS, which can remotely lead to one's death and which is caused by intravenous drug use, sodomy, etc., or, or in excessive eating, which eventually leads to cardiac problems, so we can do it indirectly. You know, today you get this idea, people say, you know, the minute you say, you know, maybe the whole problem with AIDS is the fact that people don't have their act together morally. Of course, you get the immediate reaction from the people who aren't leading good lives because they don't want you to, you know, put your finger on the soft spot because that's, the, you know, they want to do these things and so don't say anything against them. But the fact of the matter is, is if the people acted morally, they would wipe out AIDS within two or three generations. So, and that's something that we don't wanna, they don't want to admit. Sin, since it resides in the will, leaves a stain on the soul insofar as the soul lacks something that, shouldn't, that should be there, that is the right order of the will. So in other words, it leaves, it leaves something in the will as a result of it, and that, what it leaves is a habit or an inclination to evil. Sin entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, and people will become irrational and even mentally ill by their unhealthy attachment to some created good. And you actually see this, you know, people become so attached to something that they have, if somebody comes along and shish-kebabs it, the person just mentally goes out of their mind. Furthermore, sin engenders vice, either intellectually, in other words, we have bad intellectual habits, and sometimes if it gets bad enough, it's called mental illness, which is the inability uh, it's a mental illness is a set of habits in the mind which makes it impossible for the person to grasp reality, the truth, or the mo it also uh, gives makes it difficult for us to grasp the moral good, not just in the faculty in which the sin pertains, does it cause disorders, but also, such as the incubus appetite in relation to conjugations, but also the intellect and the lower faculties. In other words, every time you commit any sin, even though the habit might predominantly be, say, in the concupiscible appetite because you ate too much, so now the next time you're around, you know, you, you see chocolate and because you woofed down the whole bag of chocolate last time, now you see at this time there's a tendency to want to woof the whole bag down again. Not only is it in the concupiscible appetite, but it leaves residual habits in the intellect and will. Every time a person commits a sin, even if it's executed through the body, there's a concomitant vice in the will. So what will happen is, is that even if people find kind of a quieting of the body's inclination to evil, they'll find there's still the disordered in the will that's hard to, to, hard to fight. 
St. Thomas says that whatever goes contrary to the order of a thing deprives a person of that order. This we see in relation to the will moving the intellect contrary to the truth. In other words, the intellect is ordered towards knowing the truth. If you commit sin and tell it to look at something from a false point of view, then the intellect starts loosening that ordering towards the truth. On one level, to be deprived of the order is merely a natural consequence of it. You know, you just you do it with these habits, and then you, you just messed up. On the other hand, it is also a punishment. And in this sense, sin merits punishment. St. Thomas observes that man participates in a threefold order, of which each is perverted. Now, this threefold order is essentially, effectively speaking, each sin makes a person suffer in conscience by the remorse or sorrow of conscience. In Latin, we call this the vermis conscientiae, it's the worm of the conscience. And there's that line in Scripture where Christ says, you know, basically in hell, the, there's, it's the place where the worm, you know, continually eateth. You know, it just it keeps eating away at the person. That refers to the conscience. The fact is, is that many mental illnesses and disorders are the result of a nagging conscience. Very often the person tries to bury the conscience in rationalizations or deny or in denial. But the fact is, is that sin punishes a man mentally for the recovery and maintenance of mental health and also just to make sure that you can perceive the truth properly, a clear conscience is absolutely necessary. The second effect of sin is that man is often punished by other men. So the first is, the first, and the, he said there's a threefold order. The first order is interiorly. You yourself are punished interiorly for your sin. The second effect is that man is punished by other men. That is, his relationship with other men is compromised. Sin separates us from others and makes our communal life difficult, as we mentioned. And so as a result, the other order is the communal life. You're punished at the level of the communal life. And this is kind of always interesting. You know, you kind of get people, they'll do this business of, uh, they're just very angry people. And so they'll, you know, cheer everyone out. And they become involved with. And then they get angry because nobody wants to be around them. You're just like, well, it's the, it's the proper effect of your sin. You're getting punished by the people in the on a natural order because you, people are just cutting themselves off to you because you're so angry. We're deprived of the divine governance, which means that we are left to our own disorder. If man cannot be perfectly happy or even imperfectly happy without leading a life according to divine laws, that is, according to the divine governance, then those who sin are consigned to unhappiness. When people say they don't think a sin is bad, all you have to do is look at, are they happy? Not that they say they're happy, because sin blinds us, and so they no, I'm happy. Well, you look at them, and they're just miserable. You will find that only a morally good life really brings happiness. And so one of the things I tell people is, you know, one of the signs that you know the feminist movement isn't rightly ordered is that everyone who gets involved in it to a large degree is miserable. You know, they're just, it's just very angry people. As we are bereft of divine governance, we are left to our own sin and disorder. So the third order is interiorly, the first one is interior, second one is in relation to other men, the third is in relationship to God. This means that sin is the cause of other sin, insofar as we continue to deviate more and more from the law of God. Through sin, we become less subject to God's governance. You know, when he said, you know, I come to establish the kingdom of God, he meant that he came to establish a governance in our interior life by which we are subject to his rule. 
and as a result were much happier. Since God created man in the universe for God's glory, and since they are his property, then for us to violate that order which he has created deserves a punishment. Like all forms of punishment, it is not only penal but retributive. That is, the person must pay back to the person against whom the injustice was committed. For that reason, every time sin occurs, that is, every time you commit a sin, we violate God's justice and we must therefore make retribution. That is, we must pay back or restore the glory due to God. It's analogous to theft. Every time God created this for his own glory. When you commit a sin, you rob him of that glory. Because you should have done the right thing, which gives him glory, but you didn't. And so as a result, you've robbed him. Well, now you've got to pay him back. It's not just enough to go and say you're sorry. I always use this example, you know, some little kid steals 50 cents from his brother and he's holding the 50 cents and he goes, I'm sorry. And the kid says, well, give me my money back. No. Well, then you're not sorry. So part of being sorry is that you realize you've got to give the money back. You've got to give glory back. And that's why we have to do acts of reparation. We have to suffer and do good works in order to increase the glory in this world to compensate for the glory that we detracted from. Therefore, every time we commit a sin, we have an obligation in justice to make reparation to God. It's another reason why I tell people, stop sinning. All you're doing is making more that you have to pay back. But we also, God's going to extract the justice out of you either in this life or the next. What that means is either you're going to do it voluntarily in this life, or you might do it involuntary in this life, that he'll just punish you, and then everyone will look at you and say, see, God's justice is there, so God's glory kind of gets manifest in the justice. I always tell people there are certain people in life whose whole reason for being is for everyone to know what not to be like. But, or he'll get it from you in the next life, either because you're in hell or because at the final judgment you're going to have to stand before him and every other created rational being and account for every infraction of the law that you committed in front of everybody. There's no such thing as private sin. Everybody will see everything that you ever did. And that's how God's going to get justice out of you, one way or another. We see this in some women, for example, as far as the uh, as far as this ability, one, this, this inclination to make uh, reparation, in women who have had abortions and who go to confession. Sometimes women will know that God forgives them, but they know that they ha that they have taken something from God, and the person they have killed, which cannot be replaced. This desire to restore the transcendent order of justice. Now, there's two orders of justice. There's the natural order. So, if I steal fifty dollars from somebody, I have to give fifty dollars back to him. But sometimes I can't give it back to him because, you know, he's dead or he's left and I can't find him or whatever the case is. And so St. Thomas says you have to fulfill the transcendent order of justice, that is, you have to pay back to God. Because the fact that you violated um, the justice in relationship to the other person, that is, the natural order, you also violated the transcendent order because God set up the natural order for his own glory. So you have to pay back to God. And so the desire to restore the transcendent order of justice is so deep in the psychology of women, and men for that matter, that the post-abortive woman will often have to, will often try to have a replacement baby. It is also, because then they feel like, well, they've made up for it. It is also why women find a great deal of emotional mending when they pray for the aborted child, which has theological problems, but I won't go into that, or pray for children who are in danger of being aborted. Moreover, reordering the faculties back to the divine justice aids those who have committed sins in getting their faculties straightened out so that they are less inclined to sin. There is a natural inclination for us to want to pay back. It's part of justice. And when we do something really bad, 
we do, you see that people want to realize, I've got to make up for it. So well, the way you make up for it is by doing prayer, suffering, good works to God. And if you've done it against somebody else, the first step is asking for forgiveness and things like this. The fact that satisfaction must be made indicates that justice must be served even if mercy is granted. Even though you, we may ha uh, be forgiven of sin by God in confession, the requirement to make restitution to him remains. There is a therefore, there is a temporal punishment due to sin, and this temporal punishment includes not only paying God back by meritorious works for the sins which we have committed, but it also includes the disorder of the faculties and the soul by the sin. Since man is naturally ordered to justice and rendered to God is due, it means that we must reorder ourselves as a matter of justice. Even if we find in us a disorder, even if we didn't commit a sin, we have, and we have some disorder in our faculties, since creation is made for God's glory, we have an obligation in justice to repair our faculties to give Him glory. Otherwise, we commit an injustice to God. Now, this is a very important point because today you have people running around saying, well, I'm a homosexual and there's no sin in that as long as I don't act on it. Wait a minute. Okay, that's true if you've always fought the inclinations and you're taking reasonable means to overcome it. But if you don't try and straighten out your faculties, then you are complicit in this disorder which detracts from God's glory, and that's sinful. So being a homosexual without doing anything about it is sinful. Of course, you can't say that too loudly in the public forum, but uh, I'm actually doing that in an article, uh, but in a more intellectual way so that people can't come after me. They have to at least deal with the argument. You might have been raised with all sorts of problems and you got all these disorders and everything, and it may not be your fault, it doesn't matter. It's still your obligation to clean up the mess. And if you don't do it, you're going to have to stand before God for not having made a reasonable effort to clean it up. The church has always made the distinction between mortal and venial sin, of course, and mortal sin is a grievous offense against the law of God. And mortal sin differs from venial sin in that mortal sin is a turning away from God as one's ultimate end, that is, from an incommunicable good. Uh, to a created good, that is, in other words, you turn from something that's infinite and infinitely precious to something that's just very measurable, it's virtually nothing. Whereas venial sin does not represent a turning away from God as one's ultimate end, St. Thomas says, and in doing so, mortal sin, however, irreparably perverts the order to God. It is irreparable because once the soul has committed mortal sin, and lost sanctifying grace, it cannot repair the damage left in it on its own. It can only be repaired by divine power, St. Thomas says. Mortal sin causes the loss of sanctifying grace, and so the soul cannot merit anything in justice before God. And this, therefore, makes it impossible for the soul to repair the order of justice when it's in the state of mortal sin. Mortal sin makes all our acts, when we are in the state of mortal sin, meritless. Sometimes you get people say, well, if I fell into mortal sin, and then I did a good act, and then I went back to confession, I get the merit for the act that I committed in mortal sin. No. Now, there is the general opinion that once you get back into the state of grace, the merits for the acts that you did in the state of grace revive. But when you're in the state of mortal sin, your action is utterly meritless. It might be good, but that doesn't mean it merits anything in the eyes of God. Since the soul is turned away from God, it has lost an infinite good and therefore deserves an infinite punishment. And that infinite punishment is eternal damnation, that is, the consignment of the soul to hell after death. The loss of eternal beatitude and the, loss of, uh, and the pain of loss and the pain of sense also follow from mortal sin. 
even though the soul is given over to t eternal punishment, which includes the eternal company of Satan in the next life, so that's one of the effects of mortal sin. Well, you don't want God? Well, then this is the guy's company who you get. In this life, the person steps out of the order of God and is given over to the power of the devil. In other words, when you're in mortal sin, you're going to have a hard time doing what's right without God's grace, because you're going to end up very quickly succumbing to the demonic influence. This rupture of communion with God excludes one from the reign or kingdom of God and makes one an enemy of God. So that's one of the effects of mortal sin. You become a God's enemy. Since one is working against his order and will. As an enemy of God, one is subject to his just anger. Mortal sin results in the loss of all of the infused virtues. So once you are in the state of grace, God infuses virtues in your soul so that you can actually... Um, you can actually reach heaven, except for faith and hope. Those remain. But charity is lost, and so is infused temperance and infused prudence and things like that, infused justice. Those are lost. You also lose all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which makes it more difficult on the side of the creature, not on the side of God, but on the side of the creature, to be moved by God. Mortal sin has a greater capacity to cause all of the disorders of sins which we have discussed, at least in comparison to venial sin. And mortal sin is particularly dangerous because a person loses sanctifying grace, making it impossible for him to merit any graces from God and therefore merit any uh, ability to, again, to repair the damage. Once out of grace, you don't keep mortal sinning, as I said, because you just end up disordering your faculties more. You get back to confession. Venial sin, being a slight offense against the law of God, does not misdirect one away from God as the final end, because you're not cut off from God by venial sin, but only, St. Thomas says, the means to God. Since the divine laws are the ordering, that is, they direct us on how to live our life, they concern the means to God as well as the ordering to God himself, for the means themselves are either ordered towards God or they are not. In other words, every single thing you do in this life helps you to reach God or it drags you away from God. In this respect, St. Thomas says that venial sin does not cause us to turn away from God as our ultimate end, but it is a failing on the side of the means, that is, we're performing actions which will not lead to God. Though, at the same time, they do not take us away from God because we're still in the state of grace and we'll see him face to face if we die. Venial sin, however, can increase a habit and a disposition. If we do it repeatedly, it can lead to mortal sin, and so it should be avoided. Since it can increase a bad habit, it means that venial sin impedes the soul's progress in the exercise of virtues and the practice of the moral good. In other words, it just merely impedes your spiritual life. <coughs> and this is always a danger, because sometimes you get people who, um, you know, St. Thomas says that there's, there's three stages of the interior life, which of course gets um, talked about quite a bit after him, but um, the first stage is the guy who just tries to stay out of mortal sin. And you get people who get to the point where they're kind of staying out of mortal sin, and so they kind of rest on their laurels and say, you know, it's kind of easy. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're not advancing in your spiritual life. I always tell people, ceasing sin, stopping the sin, is not the end of the spiritual life. It's the beginning. It's the first step. You have to stop sinning. Well, that's not possible. Yes, it is. It's a thing called grace. And as you begin to work on it and you stop sinning, that's only the first step. That's called the purgative way. And then there's two other steps that have to be taken, two major steps that have to be taken before you even reach perfection. This also means that venial sin weakens the supernatural virtue of charity in its exercise. Not charity itself, St. Thomas says, but in its exercise. In other words, by venial sin, we set up bad habits in our will, which makes it harder to perform acts of charity.
Since venial sin is about the means, it, is a, it manifests a disordered affection for created goods. That is, it causes attachments to created goods. Since it impedes the exercise of charity and the other virtues, it causes tepidity of soul. That is, kind of a lukewarmness. And so the person is less disposed to the reception of grace when they commit venial sin. Like all their sin is an injustice to God, and so there is a temporal punishment due to venial sin. Reparation has to be made for the venial sin as much as it does for mortal. Sin affects people other than the one performing the sinful action. Our sin actually affects other people in a variety of ways. Other people may be the object of our sinful action, or the sinful action may, we may perform has some disordering effect on them. We see this, for example, with children. Uh, for example, when a spouse beats the other spouse, the sin does not affect the person only physiologically, but psychologically as well. In other words, it makes it harder for them to lead a good moral life. So not only are you culpable for your sin, but you're culpable for the effects of the sin. And if the effects of the sin are that this person makes it harder to save their soul, you're culpable for that. Children often suffer the effects of the sins of their parents, not only physiologically, but psychologically. So, for example, children of alcoholics can suffer grave psychological harm. Also, it's not just the immediate effects, it's the long-term effects. If you commit a sin, and then the result is, is that it just snowballs or continues perpetuating in your family life or history, or because of the, you pass on these kinds of these tendencies of behavior to your, your kids, and then they pass it on, and they pass it on, you're culpable for every single generation that it affects. This is one of the reasons why there's a final judgment, a general judgment, because it's not just when you die, God tells you, okay, you're in the state of grace, you come to heaven, or you go to hell. It's at the final judgment, he has to unfold so that everyone can see the effects of every single sin that you committed. One of the effects of all sin is it subjects again to the, sub the power of the demonic. The less sinful, and that pertains also to venial sin. The less sinful we are, the less likely we are to become subject to the demonic. And so sometimes people say, well, how do I avoid becoming possessed? Because you know, people hear that you can be in the state of grace and get possessed. And I said, well, first of all, it doesn't happen that often. Although it does happen, and it may not be to do any fault of the person, but the holier you are, the less likely it's going to happen. The last effect of sin is that it not only requires active purgation, that is what we can do on our part. We have to do everything we have to do to root it out. So every time you commit a sin, that means you've cut out more work that you have to do to get this thing straightened out. But sin and its effects are so deeply rooted in our souls that it's not just what we can do gets them straightened out. It's so disordering. Sin is so disordering, it cuts all the way to the depths, the lowest depths of the soul. And as a result, you have to go through the passive purgation. That is, God has to burn it out of you, literally in the sense of he has, to, he has to drag you through intense suffering to burn this stuff out of you. And so it means you're going to have to spend time in purgatory. You're going to have to spend a lot more time in purgatory or to get it burned out. Or you're just going to have to deal with it in this life. That is, you're going to have to suffer a lot in this life to get it burned out. A single venial sin <coughs> requires not just, I think, suppose someone all their life had never committed a moral sin, all they committed was one venial sin. They'd still have to go through the passive purgation because God's got to, our soul, our faculties are not sufficient to reach into the depths of our soul and pull the, this thing out by its roots. God's got to do it. We just have to trim off the top so that God can get to the roots and yank it out. And that's why every time you commit a sin, you just add to your work. You add to what you have to do, and you add to what God has to do to get you straightened out. So the moral of the, sin, the story is, stop sinning.
you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, Supervos et Maniat Semper. Amen.